0: nearly every 1968 movement was a decolonizing one, occurring in post-colonial states of all sorts," unquote. So writes my guest, Burley Hendrickson. He revisits the transnational activism of 1968 across the former French empire to argue that we need to understand 1968 as part of the ongoing and unfinished history of decolonization. Today, wherever else you might be, we are taking you to three fabulous cities, Tunis, Dakar, and Paris. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Elisa Prosperetti, And today, we're speaking with Burleigh Hendrickson, assistant professor of French and Francophone studies at Penn State, and author of Decolonizing 1968, Transnational Student Activism in Tunis, Paris, and Dakar. The book has just been published by Cornell University Press. Burley, welcome to the podcast.
1: Uh, Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on today. I'm really looking forward to speaking with your audience about my new book.
0: Yeah, it's very exciting. So introduce yourself a little bit to us. How did you come to this project?
1: Uh, There's probably a short, middle, and long answer to this. Um, Hopefully, I'll get somewhere in the middle of that. Um, I would say... I'd always had an interest in sort of radical politics and revolution. Um, And I was also the child of parents who were university students during the Vietnam War, uh, parents in the the US university system. So they were sort of witnessing and observing a lot of the student activism going on around them. Um, So I think I just always grew up with sort of in that first generation that really started questioning government, um, hearing the conversations in, Uh, you know, at our dinner tables, and um, also trying to understand what it is that gets people uh, into the streets to try to make change in their world. Um, And then with the French Revolution, I ended up, you know, as more of an intellectual later on, I wrote a master's thesis on that. And as I was trying to think about a project for a potential, you know, dissertation topic, I started to get really intimidated about the French Revolution. And I also wanted to Uh, I was also developing interest beyond France's borders. So as I was reading about uh, African intellectuals, the history of the former French colonies, um, I ended up taking a seminar in 1968 and realizing there might have been a little bit more room in that historiography where I I could potentially slot myself. So it was kind of during that seminar that I started reading about um, France's May 68 a little bit more and stumbled on uh, similar activism and uh, university-wide strikes and protests in uh, Tunisia and Senegal as well. And I started thinking about the French colonial past and figured there must be some kinds of connections I'd like to explore more.
0: Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit later about that process of wrangling three places that, that might seem quite separated and part of separate historiographies and kind of getting them into conversation with each other. But one thing that you've just outlined is that you were drawn to this history as a history of activism, and you've presented it here as a history of transnational activism. And I think that what's interesting is that this book comes out now when it does, when it seems that this is a moment where global protests and activist movements have really found a resurgence, particularly on the left. I'm thinking of the US, but I'm also thinking Right now, as we're recording of protests in China against uh, no COVID policies, the protests in Iran, there's really a a global moment in which protests is somehow newly relevant in a way that I remember when I was growing up, I remember hearing people of your parents' generation saying how protests had died, you know, with, with the end of the Cold War. And so this book, I think, really speaks to this political moment, this broad geopolitical moment that we're in, And in the prologue of the book, I suppose, you you talk about how when you first arrived in Tunisia in February of 2011 to to do research, you arrived just weeks after the Arab Spring, what we now call the Arab Spring, had broken out in Tunisia. And that's something I think historians aren't always as aware about, how the present shapes the work that they're doing. So can you talk a little bit about the impact of the Arab Spring uh, in your research and also how that shaped your thinking about the project as you were developing it.
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, well, first off, I didn't know if I would be able to do the research um, because I was slated. Uh, I ended up getting lucky to get some grant funding to actually carry out this transnational research as I had realized all of a sudden that within a three month period, there were these you know, universities shutting down in all three sites um, that all had this sort of connection of being former French colonies. Um, and I had purchased tickets and then was, you know, I'd been reading up on Tunisia and Senegal in the news to see what was going on before in preparation for my research trips and saw that there was this major revolution, obviously. Um, so it wasn't clear if it would be safe enough for one to go. Um, and I was just in touch uh, regularly with the American Research Overseas Center there, uh K-Orc. Uh, my good colleague, Tom DeGeorge, was director at the time uh, and assuaged me that things were um, a little bit in transition, a little dicey, but that it would be okay to come. Um, and in fact, it, I think it was the one of the possibly best moments I could have been there to actually do this research um, for a number of reasons. For one, uh, I spoke with other scholars uh, who'd been working there who had experienced on occasion some challenges getting um access to certain archives getting research clearances under Ben Ali's dictatorship all of that went away um there was no oversight from the government and the research that I was doing um there was also I think probably most importantly was that you know under the Bourguiba regime uh, previously before Ben Ali came to power there was um Bourguiba was dictator from basically 1957 to 1987 and um you know so during the time that i was trying to understand these 68 movements um, and a lot of folks uh had been very scared to discuss politics especially with a foreigner fear of surveillance again all this went away and the folks that i spoke to the former 68ers and even just tunisians that i would meet uh, uh, at the cafes and and talk about the current situation they had like a desire um to engage in politics political discussions to, to to discuss uh a future where democracy might be possible um to live without fear uh and to envision a new future so I think you know perhaps the most important impact that the Revolution had um for my research was just making it possible and opening those doors to have those conversations um, safely and freely, uh, but it also, it was really hard not to make comparisons between I mean, I was looking at like images of Boisizi, the young uh, 26-year-old Tunisian who self-immolated because he was um, in such dire straits uh, economically and and depressed and uh, under Ben Ali um, just his visual image, uh, you know, who ends up becoming the face of the Arab Spring and this martyr for Tunisians, and um, he looks strikingly similar to Mohammed Ben Jenet, who was uh, scapegoated for leading protests um, in June of 1967 um, for, a, you know, a pro two state solution stance, uh, a Tunisian uh, leftist at the theology school who um, didn't like Bourguiba's close relationship with the West. Um, so just seeing this kind of resonance that there was a, some some historical continuities between these two actors. Uh, both seeking change um both uh experiencing government repression um, both being taken up as causes by uh young folks in Tunisia um uh, and both being seen as sort of symbols um, of, of a youth movement uh, for change so yeah definitely had a had a major impact on the research um, and the ways that I was thinking about it
0: well let's pick up with Ben Jennet because I think that's a, a good segue into uh, talking just a briefly about each of these three cases that you're looking at again Tunis, Paris and Dakar in 1968 and the first chronologically is Tunis in March of 1968 and you just explained how um, it, it kind of the protest kind of began because of the scapegoating of, of Ben Jennet but What I found really helpful in thinking about 1968 in the way it conjugates in Tunisia is that this is really a protest that comes out against the Six-Day War um, the the, the year prior. And so you have clearly a kind of global or transnational political context, but of course, there's also the very local context of the, the student demands and student grievances. So maybe talk us through each of those three cases.
1: Sure, um, right, so Benjana ends up getting scapegoated for sort of leading you know, hundreds of activists who were upset um, with Bourguiba's position. And it ended up not so dissimilar to the French case where you had a sort of initial student grievance and really what sets off larger numbers of protesters is the government response. Um, when you had you know one student just for showing up outside of an embassy getting 20 years of hard labor uh that set off um thousands of students uh at the University of Tunis um, who shut down the University demanded their release of detained activists from the 67 protest Uh, and it was actually the um pronouncement of those guilty verdicts that led to those initial protests so it ended up sort of shifting from a kind of general anti-colonial stance, um, viewing sort of Israel as a colonial aggressor um, and and viewing uh, negatively those Tunisian um, existing ties with um, France and Britain and the U.S., uh, and it turned quite quickly into something about more basic human rights, um, penal reform. Uh, There were other students over the course of the March 68 protests who were swept up and detained, who never had access to an attorney, never had any proper legal defense, uh, unconstitutionally detained, not able to speak to their parents who didn't know their whereabouts. Um, And some of them spent um, almost a decade uh, rotting in torture chambers under the Borgheba administration. So um, somewhat paradoxically, uh, a number of Tunisian advocates based in france uh, largely in paris launched some international human rights campaigns for the release of these um, political dissidents uh, and student protesters and activists so um, they later were able to collaborate with um, associations of international lawyers uh, based in france Um, they worked with uh, other french professors who were um, signing on to uh petitions in support of these students trying to gather uh public opinions reaching out to media and the press uh to to put international public pressure on for to release these folks um and in some instances had some success um so in many ways this is sort of we can see this shift from kind of general anti-colonialism uh to um something much more concrete um for rights at the local level, but launched, um, from abroad. So yes. I just want, yes. sorry to interrupt, but you have such a no. great,
0: uh, quote from, uh, Foucault who says it wasn't the May 1968 in Paris that made me, it was the Tunisia 1968 that made me. And I think that that is just really helpful to kind of align our understandings of, of how this, this year, um, you know happened and 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 it's and it's importance in the tunisian case. So so tell no, us-
1: exactly there were there were a couple of transnational actors um uh well there were several but a few of note that I think your listeners uh, might have uh more access to and you know Foucault was you know widely criticized across france for having little to no presence in the 68 movement unlike south who was often at the front lines and when in fact he wasn't present uh, he was actually a visiting professor in the philosophy department at the university of tunis from 1966 to 68 and had in his classrooms some of these student activists who were later imprisoned and detained so he you know he wrote uh, he took deposition testimony on their behalf trying to release them there was one, um, uh, Afman Ben-Odmani, uh, who features fairly prominently in the book, uh, was a, a former student of his. Um, after the June 67 protests, uh, Foucault actually allowed him to hide out in his Hidibusayi department uh, to evade police. Um, eventually, he was captured and brought in um, and was one of the folks who experienced uh, horrible, horrible tortures um, for most of the 1960s and early 1970s. Um, uh, but in any event, uh, Foucault, certainly what I found interesting later, um, you know, claiming that he sort of became politically engaged after what he witnessed, uh, he was also finishing up um, uh, Discipline and Punish uh, at this time. And I, to my mind, I'm not a Foucault specialist, but there's no way that this wasn't impacting his uh, interpretations of how an oppressive government works, how an oppressive penal system can uh, sort of control and discipline uh, an entire society. Um, and that sort of reading Othmani's uh, testimonies and, and uh, memorials about his experiences and the interactions he had with the perpetrators of these crimes. Um, you can see that sort of diffusion of power um, that, that Foucault kind of brings out and, and became, I think, sensitized to after he witnessed what was going on there. Also, Anna Jasmard, uh, who some of your listeners may know as um, a prominent, uh, well, he's a prominent student activist against the Algerian War in the early 1960s and later was head of SNESUP, a, a major national teachers union, was um, beckoned by French teachers who were working as cooperants uh, working in a program teaching in Tunisian universities and high schools who requested him to come and advise them on what kind of role they could take in perhaps uh, helping the student movement. Um, as home, part of their, it was stipulated that they weren't supposed to engage in any sort of support. They didn't have the right to strike and join a student movement in the same way that they would in France because of their status uh, in Tunisia. Uh, And Jais Mal became aware of the movement as he went and, and, you know, took a plane right in 1968 and visited with these folks to advise on them, and then later was at the front lines in May with French students. So the other thing I find interesting about this was that Bourguiba and Senghor as well were trying to delegitimize the student movements taking place on their campuses, flagship university campuses, and basically trying to claim that their students were just imitating the French um, and what had happened in May '68. But that's an impo- that's totally impossible with the Tunisian case since it started in March, a couple of months earlier. And In the case of Senegal, it had a very local context that had set it off. There was um, there's very little evidence at all that that these were just imitations or that they were following uh, orders from abroad from their you know previous colonial oppressors like Senghor and Bourguiba were trying to claim.
0: Well, I mean, that's, I think, the fundamental dimension about this book and about your work on 1968 and its consequences, which is really stepping back from each of these cases and seeing them not connected in the sense that A led to B led to C, right, but seeing them as connected in the sense that you have these actors circulating, so Maghrebi and Senegalese students in Paris. French and we should say Copéron we're, were engaged by the French state as kind of development mm-hmm. workers, technical assistance in former French colonies and dependencies. So you have these kind of transnational circulations, but you also have these broad, um, transversal uh, geopolitical uh, protests and alignments in the context of the Cold War. So whether it's Palestine, whether it's the Vietnam War, whether it's um, the Algerian War, that really cleave, you know, internally uh, countries in this political moment, but also bind transnationally uh, the, the left in, in this moment, which is is what you're tracing. So tell us about what happens in Paris in 1968, which is a couple of weeks after what happens in Tunis.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, it depends on... <laughs> But there's, there's a large debate among scholars of the sort of origin story of, of Francis May 68. And um, I'd have to give a shout out here to uh, Michel Zancarini fournel who was uh, a preeminent scholar of 68, um, uh, who was one of the first to sort of call it the 68 years and try to just get us out of this tiny little snapshot that historians had been sort of obsessed with. That also, I mean, the idea that it's just May of 68 um, Uh, Is sort of telling, so kind of writing against this idea um, that periodization was often categorized by, you know, some of the first major clashes with French police in the Latin Quarter took place right around May one, and on then on like May thirty or thirty one, De Gaulle gives this famous speech, uh, basically saying, um, you know, calling out the students and saying, okay, French, you know, what do we want here? Do you want me or do you want? Um, these sort of hapless students, and and that sort of being the sort of death knell of the movement. That later in this referendum, the French people come out and in droves, and uh, De Gaulle wins, um, you know, relatively easily against uh, socialist and communist adversaries, um, and and many sort of thinking that everything's done. And there were also some. Uh, accords going on between major worker unions and and the French state around that time. So there's been historians have kind of been pushing back on that notion, um, but for me, uh, at least for the heightened activism that took place and the heightened clashes between the state and and student populations, for me it's the March twenty two movement, um, which was led by Daniel Cohn Bendit. Um, to liberate uh, students who'd been detained for ransacking and um, vandalizing an American Express uh, uh, store um, in the heart of Paris uh, as a symbol um, to sort of reject US presence in Vietnam and US global capitalism um so of course this is illegal activity uh some of these um they were from the communist youth uh, movement group the gcr in france um so xavier Longlade was it was detained imprisoned um and they wanted his release and they were this was all kind of in the context of anti-vietnam war movement at the same time that the university of nanterre this is in the outskirts of paris was battling with what they viewed as sort of paternalism from the French state and university authorities, separating male and female dorms, making access to libraries challenging. Um, so there were, there were there was more at issue here, but, but really uh, that March 22 movement was sort of really picking up steam um, around this anti-Vietnam War cause, but generally against all sorts of forms of authoritarianism and paternalism that they saw, you know, in the home, in the dorms, in the classrooms, Um, and rejecting global capitalism in the face of the United States. Um, These clashes sort of picked up, and there was this famous Night of the Barricades uh, in uh, the night of May 10-11. And this is when, you know, Parisians are looking out their windows and watching cops uh, smash up and bash unarmed students. Um, And it also had resonances with, uh, you know, the commune and... Revolutionary groups taking over the the city, and they literally took up all the bricks and piled them all up, and blocked off the streets, and flipped cars, and were battling it out with the own with their own state um, for control over that city center, that that Latin Quarter, that was a heart of uh, the major universities in Paris. So that is Paris,
0: nineteen sixty eight, and. You know it's easy it's easy to understand why that's been somehow the banner 1968 of course we have not just um you know north africa and west africa we have mexico we have czechoslovakia so mm-hmm. there's a bigger canvas here which we're aware of but i think in the space of the francophonie or former french empire paris really sucks up the oxygen so, and then you have our, our third 1968 in your book, which is what happens in Dakar just a few weeks after.
1: Yeah, so, and one of the thing, uh, as I sort of shift gears and talk about Dakar that I, is worth mentioning is that, you know, France is sort of um, a drowning empire at this moment. They've just lost Vietnam. Uh, in '54 with Bin Fu they've been replaced by the United States, so that's on the minds of these sort of French activists and anti-colonialists. They've also recently just lost their sort of crown jewel in Algeria in 1962. So some of those images I described of, you know, uh, riot police in the streets duking it out with students, um, had a very there was a very short memory with, uh, or or close linking memories with um, what was taking place with anti-Algerian war activism. I mean, one of the reasons that the French were unsuccessful was that public opinion shifted and no longer supported that um, that that bloody and gruesome war uh, in Algeria uh, up until 1962. So uh, folks had, there was a real resonance with what they were witnessing and these, the very recent colonial losses. Um, so uh, just in terms of, you know, how decolonization is factoring into this Parisian case, it wasn't just disgruntled students throwing bricks, there was also this kind of national history at work uh, as well, national history and memory. Um, In the case of Dakar, this, like the sort of local unique cases would be um, the government was kind of running out of money. Um, They had a really poor uh, groundnut and peanut harvest the preceding year, and they had been investing really heavily, almost a third of their budget in national education. So they decided they were going to cut back on student scholarships. Um, and I know you've done some work on this in the the Ivory Coast, which I think was perhaps taking some notes on the Senegalese case and not wanting to do the same thing to avoid the sort of uh, troubles that were to come. Um, but students had been trying to negotiate with the government as soon as they learned of this in the spring of 68. And the government refused to sit down with them and were going through with the with the budget cuts. Uh so students uh, at the end of May, just a few weeks after the French had really clashed in the streets, um, shut down the university campus uh, and had a university-wide strike. And what was interesting about the Senegalese case here, um, they were the flagship university in West Africa. Uh, so in terms of student break uh, breakdown, about one-third of the population was actually Senegalese nationals. One-third were French nationals, and one-third were a variety of neighboring Uh, African countries so most of the striking students the French had almost no part in this there were French who supported the movement but those were all from abroad like activists who were engaged like that I mentioned earlier had Senegalese friends in Paris that were informing of the situation there they were creating transnational movements of solidarity with them but the French actually on the campus didn't join however Senegalese and other neighboring African uh, students of neighboring nations um did join forces and and uh Senghor was really the Senegalese president was livid furious someone who had um, himself benefited so much from the French education system basically put a very similar one in place in Dakar uh and students began to not just protest the fact that they um, were going to lose out on some scholarship money but they also were protesting about the content of the curriculum you know, why are we the flagship African, West African University, and we study more French poets than African ones? Why are we still studying, you know, Rousseau and Baudelaire? Why aren't we studying our own uh, people? So it was also about decolonizing that curriculum and about um, decolonizing industry in Senegal, which was still uh, heavily influenced by French nationals and uh, folks from the Levant, from Syria and Lebanon. Um so they wanted to kind of nationalize and Africanize the university uh, industry. They wanted to get away from only you know having this overdependence on agriculture that they were exporting to back to France instead of serving the local population and diversifying that in case they had a poor crop uh, that year. So there was there was a lot at play in, in Senegal, and in fact, the Tunisian case workers never joined them. They were in '68. They were kind of in line step with the Bourguiba regime in the single-party state but really powerful national labor unions in Senegal and France both ended up sort of piggybacking onto these student movements and taking them well beyond the university campuses and having great success in advocating for their own uh, worker rights.
0: So we've looked at these three cases and we see that they're a mix of kind of very local um, conditions, context, struggles, and also this broader fabric, this broader landscape, you know, that, of, of this moment. And I wanted to turn to the title of the book Decolonizing 1968. Very short, but once I read your introduction, I find out that these two words really mean a great deal. Um, and I think in my shorthand, what I understand as your overriding argument was that these were struggles that were created by, um, an- that were anti-colonial struggles. So in, in some sense, they were, they were wrestling with problematics left over or unfinished from colonialism. But at the same time, the fact of having been connected through the imperial structures created the possibilities for these transnational activisms, for these exchanges, for these circulations. And so it's really uh, difficult to disentangle these 1968s from the fact of empire and its unfinished business as the, or unfinished independence as the Senegalese say. So how do you think about the title and the work that it's doing and the arguments that it's encapsulating? Because for two words, it really does a lot of work.
1: Yeah. Yes. Um, well, thank you for that. I think you laid that out a little better in some ways than I could. But I think I just, and I, I have to thank one of my blind peer reviewers um, who edited the manuscript um, in just sort of allowing me the possibility to just sit in the uncomfortable tension that decolonization produces and that this moment produces. Um, and I think... Um, that's exactly it. I was sort of fighting against this. I, when I started the project, I actually I wanted to so decenter France and Paris that I was I was going to try to look at Lyon as another uh, case study. Um, but after I got into the sources, it was just like Paris was just always there. Um, I don't know if it's the centerpiece, but it's clearly a hugely important piece in connecting um, these three movements. Um, and relaying information between activists underground to sort of push back against state control. So, I mean, I think there's a lot at work. I think part of the decolonizing was realizing just how much decolonization generally, literally was um, informing these movements. You know, I've used 68 for the Tunisian and Senegalese case in some ways as sort of the litmus test of how decolonized are we and students saying not decolonized enough. Um, we need to expedite this process. Um, and you know, you you sort of mentioned, um, at one point, you know, the university is kind of where a lot of this is taking place, or at least where it starts. And that was also a sort of holdover, um, a legacy or or fragment of of French Empire, you know, put in place to serve the French Empire. We're gonna create universities and institutions. Um, abroad to coach up and train uh, folks that we think will serve our administration. And those end up being the sort of centers of post-colonial revolt against uh, exactly those continued um, neo-imperial ties. And I mean, I think my this shifted from when I first started working on the project as a graduate student, where I was reading a lot of post-colonial theory um, that was heavily informing the types of the stories I wanted to tell, the sort of, I mean, I do view it as decentering. Um I, you know, I think Tunisian decar feature or Tunisian Center feature, you know, at least as prominently as France does in his story, and they do for me. I wanted to, you know, highlight those voices. We don't know what they were saying as much as we know about Con Bondit, even though they were conversing with him and knew about him and interacting with his organizations and associations. Um but I think for me, there's, I started also re- reading as I was revising for the book, uh, learning a lot more about decolonial studies and what our colleagues in Latin American studies um, had been uh, doing the last 10 or 20 years. Um, so I think for me, it was this sort of a combination, the arguments as they became more refined. Where a combination of me getting feedback from good reviewers, for one, um, but also me uh, thinking more clearly about my sources and about new uh, theories and methods um, that I was kind of reading in concert. Um, so for me, I'm just sort of I'm, I'm sitting in the uncomfortable tension produced by by this moment and by the sort of theoretical questions that that are shifting um, you know, as we try to write and handle these projects. So it's also about sources. Um, under dictatorships you don't have the same access to archives that are few perhaps fewer things are recorded or open to researchers so you actually at least for 68ers who are still around you can go talk to them and get the story from the horse's mouth Um, those you know suppressed stories about torture and detention um, it can be pretty moving and powerful when you speak to someone who endured that and live to tell it um one interviewer in particular uh I think was in some ways ashamed that he wasn't as mentally or physically strong as someone like Ahmed ben Othmani, who spent you know a decade in prison uh and had just somehow developed this huge tolerance um for pain um and and this guy only lasted three months And then he had to, you know, pledge allegiance to the regime and swear he'd never do it again. And then they release him and he gets to live and see his family again. Um, But someone who's, you know, crying in an interview uh, isn't the same kind of interview you're going to have with a French 68er um, who may have been near a little bit of, uh, you know, police brutality in the streets, but um, not a decade of torture with no defense attorney um, or speaking to your parents. So that's where while they're transnationally connected. There is a level of comparison that they're not exactly the same experience for these folks, even if they're overlapping and sharing kind of anti-colonial concerns.
0: The you know, idea of decolonization as framing the possibilities of solidarity and also the kind of problematics against which solidarity is mobilized, uh, to me, is very, very clear when you talk about why the university was a site of Protest and struggle in each of these three cases. And, you know, we could think about other sites that would have, um, you know, that would have elicited such struggle. I was just thinking the Senegalese case, right? Railways, when you think Mm -hmm. about earlier um, or the dock workers in Mombasa that Frederick Cooper writes about, you know, these were other symbols of colonialism that elicited a certain type of anti-colonialism in the forties, but here in 1968, it's the university. How do you understand the site of the university as the place where these 1968s unfold?
1: Right. Well, I think one thing, and this was in large part a global phenomenon and might explain in part why 68 was, you know, goes beyond just these French cases. And we can see other iterations, some of which you mentioned earlier in Mexico, uh, Prague, et cetera. Um, but they were rapidly expanding we've got these boomer generations you have um emerging independent nations like you know 1960 we know is kind of the banner year for African independence um their top students are no longer getting subsidized by former European imperial powers to come fly them or ship them to France or Britain or wherever for studies uh not to the same extent that the this these funds are on a decline so these emerging nations have to create their own institutions and serve their own people. Um, and th- that's very costly, uh, but it's now under their charge. Um, but it also gives more students access. You can only fly so many students to France from Senegal, uh, but it's much easier to serve those populations, you know, at the locally at the national level, same thing in Tunisia. Um, so they're, you know, and they're also expanding secondary and primary and secondary education Um in many cases, expanding it uh, to it's it's becoming um, uh, mandatory. Uh, you have more women involved, girls and women involved in education and getting access to universities. So they're growing rapidly. They're having growing pains. They don't have enough room to house them. And you have this is also you know with youth, often unmarried without children. Um, you don't have the stresses of uh, feeding the family. Uh, yet you have an intellectual engagement with the outside world, and you're putting them all in a very tight space that, that's exploding um, at the same time that you have these ongoing uh, global anti-colonial movements taking place. I mean, it, it almost is like a you know a science experiment waiting to happen um, on these campuses, particularly at that moment. If I don't have the figures exactly right now but in france it was something like from 1960 to 68 it was ex- the university population exploded from like 200,000 to 600,000 which was something like 150 to 180% growth in the 8 year period and that was doubled in tunisia and senegal now the scale is smaller because those universities weren't as large as the french system um but they're uh, certainly um having a rapid period of growth
0: so in the second part of the book you know, the first part, which we've just been talking about, you really lay out these three separate cases. And in the second part of the book, you look at kind of the what these 1968s wrought in each local political context, which is quite interesting. Often we think of, you know, 1968, maybe, a, you know, the, the, the long 1960s, but we don't trace it so far the way that you do throughout the 1970s here. And to just briefly summarize, in Tunis, you talk about how uh, the student movements in, in 1968 um, help ignite a kind of human rights um, activism. And in Paris, you talk about how the left begins to take up immigrant workers' rights and then immigrant workers themselves uh, begin to mobilize for their own rights, not interested in the mm-hmm. French left uh, you know, holding, quote unquote, their hand. And then mm-hmm. in Dakar, you talk about how the 1968 movement and protest eventually helps break down the single party state that Senghor has tried to consolidate around himself and, and leads to democratization. So my kind of overall question is, how you connect the process and the experiences and the struggles against decolonization to the rise of human rights discourse, which is something that some scholars like Samuel Moyne see as quite distinct, as not feeding in one to the other. Whereas you posit that there really are uh, deep connections there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, It's funny, I I actually, you know, I learned a lot from that, the really important Moyne book. Um, and I remember as a sort of late career grad student, when that came out, also getting really, really angry with a couple of the arguments in it. And I think he's also shifted since the book came out um, after getting attacked at a few conferences, probably unjustly. Um, um, but so he he did write this really important intervention. And you know, claim that human rights didn't really become a thing until uh, at least the the 1970s, as the term started appearing more in you know English-titled works and newspapers and cropping out. That this obsession with 47 and the United Nations Declaration is 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 wrong. Um, but he has this whole chapter on a lot of these national independence movements. He looks uh, a lot at Vietnam, as I recall. Um, and kind of makes the claim that these movements for decolonization weren't about human rights at all because there wasn't a universal nature to them that they were uh, fixated on rights at the national level and independence at the national level. And I just don't view those as mutually exclusive. So maybe it's semantics, but I I really don't think that you know the Tunisians were advocating for human rights and the French and the Senegalese and other North Africans and and, and members of the international community who um joined their cause and assisted them um they weren't only concerned with tunisia's human rights they were you know they were laser beam focused on the folks that they they knew about as individuals stuck in that um authoritarian sort of quagmire of you know uh uh you know, underground cave um but they would have wanted those rights i think for most of humanity um so so for me that's that's kind of maybe the the the, the pushback on the the Moin argument that i would have um and also i think there are ways of talking about like i think there's a lot of overlap um i've started getting a lot more interested since this project in you know dignity and indignation um as uh sources of revolution revolutionary activity also as uh, sources of counter-revolutionary activity, um, the indignation that Borgiba and Senghor felt at these students complaining about a government that's investing a quarter to a third of its national budget in education, they were indignant about it. They were upset about it. That's why they sent these, you know, militias and military into vacate the campuses. Um, but I, you know, I think that uh, human rights also. I wouldn't make the overarching claim that it was the outcome of 68 in all of these cases. I think it rears its head in varying degrees. And in Tunisia, it was the most acute. Um, In France, I think uh, there was this um, heightened interest and sensitivity to the immigrant plight. Um, This was sort of at the tail end of the, the, the glorious years as we call it in french historiography of like 30 years of economic growth post 45 um that ends with uh really egregious uh, public racism toward uh large principally north african communities um that were recruited to come and rebuild france um, to feed this economic machine and build the cars uh and and work in the in the factories um that then gets mistreated and then you know you you have a reason for a cause um and there was a you know there was this kind of fleeting obsession on the left with um you know largely informed by maoism french maoists who instead of kind of going back to the fields they went back to the factories and tried to recruit immigrants um to take over uh, to radicalize them and, and take over factories and have the workers run them um but I think a lot of the the immigrant movement became an autonomous one in the 1970s as an outgrowth of '68, where they were like, you know, I don't think you need to hold the the microphone uh, at our meetings and organize us. We're quite capable of doing it ourselves and speaking on our own terms. So I think an outgrowth of this, you know, you had this this interest connection where French leftists, you know, wanted to fight the good fight, join the cause. That also ends up um, in some ways, uh, you know, initiating um autonomous immigrant workers associations
0: and then in the senegalese case it sounds from you know what i gathered from that chapter that it's human rights in the sense of more freedom of expression and the ability you know and having a one-party state let in other political voices and parties to kind of open up uh the the civil sphere that that had been that had been closed for for a decade or 15 years or so So I think that, you know, we've talked almost cavalierly about the fact that you've written a book in which Paris, Tunis and Dakar are are constantly in conversation with each other. And I really just want to commend you for having done that. That's so, so much work, so challenging to to work in three different, not just geographical spaces, but historiographical spaces and to find the connections without flattening any of the three and letting them all speak in their own terms. And I think that's really such a marvelous contribution of this book as a, as a model of how we can think about doing that. Um, so we're as we're coming to a close here, I wanted to ask you what future project you are incubating and thinking about and working on. Well,
1: um, first off, thank you so much for that generous uh, description of the book i think it was you know none of it would be possible without you know a lot of help from local archivists and scholars pointing having conversations with me and pointing me in certain directions and um i'd be the first to admit that i'm well aware the book has has many flaws but i think when you're doing something as challenging as this that's hopefully it will open conversations and 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 younger scholars can come out or older scholars i don't care how old they are um can can point out some things that I've missed um but at least I think yeah the work of putting in conversation was was quite fruitful and I'm grateful for for folks in all these places that helped make it happen um so the next project I'm this is also probably too big for me and a little bit ambitious but uh, we'll see where I end up going with it but I've started again I was inspired by this project and the conversations with um former 68ers that i had that especially in the case of tunisia that just kept bringing up dignity dignity they felt that their wazizi was the symbol for them uh of the the absence of dignity under that system um and and a desire to live a dignified life to have the right to that sort of dignified existence um and an indignation at corrupt behavior um and a sort of hope for the future so i've started thinking also um i can't there's a couple summers ago i was getting ready to teach my first grad seminar and uh i learned about robin mitchell's work where she was venus uh, Noir. she makes this really interesting argument about humiliation as uh of france losing haiti um in the early 19th century as part of the reason um that white french society uh exoticized to such an extent the uh, 19th century black female bodies um and i just thought this was fascinating uh this idea that imperial loss could potentially have a certain sort of consequence on french national behavior and national identity and the way that they would you know treat the others in their society and maybe generate new ideas about others um so it's sort of loose title currently is dignity and indignation from the enlightenment to the arab spring and i've gone back and started looking at kant a little bit and his sort of definitions he uh, wrote widely about what dignity means to him um and spinoza wrote uh, about indignation uh as a possible way for kind of multitudes of the indignant masses to to rise up at certain moments and he was a bit scared of that but um so I'm thinking about imperial loss and the indignation that certain folks feel. And I wanted to do a broad comparative study looking at how that loss of Haitian, uh, of Saint-Domingue in France and this massive you know, sugar colony that was um, and the first creation of the first black republic uh, in the modern world, um, and compare that with other major imperial losses uh, in the French empire and how that may have um, you know, shifted the ways that the French viewed themselves and viewed their others. And also how um, those others, what is that threshold where they felt their dignity has been so threatened that they might rise up and and seek to change the world that they live in? So um, uh, Haiti and Algeria are definitely there. And I I wanted to look at, you know, again, revisit a sort of more post-colonial um, case in, in Tunisia, just based on the inspiration I had from those interviews I conducted right after the Arab Spring. So... It's a bit loose and all over the place, but um, I'm excited about it and I'm learning a lot.
0: It sounds to me like uh, indignation is very deeply impregated in the Empire Project, and uh, so it seems to me that there's a lot there, a lot there to and chew I on. Hmm.
1: The, I mean, we mentioned in our you know brief informal discussion before we launched the podcast, we were kind of talking about. Uh, you know, uh, a rise in in leftist movements globally, which I think is the case. And I think like in 68, there's also um, a rise in uh, white nationalism that's also taking place in in a number of places as well. So um, I think that and I I think that we can see that in some of Mitchell's work. And I'm I'm hoping to kind of build on that direction where she's pointed me and see how it might play out in other um, cases of imperial loss as well. Well,
0: thank you, Burley, for taking the time to speak with us. I think that this book, in putting together these three cities and these 1968s and their consequences, is in some ways um, really a reflection of empire and its dismantling the way it was lived in these deeply connected ways that aren't separated the way that that we have come to do them, to do so retroactively. So thank you very much for the book and for taking the time to speak with us. And we wish you all the best.
1: Thanks so much, Elisa.